You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. All right, here we go. Welcome, everyone, to Lead to Soar. We're so glad you joined us today. And Michelle, I'm so happy to be here with you. As always, so am I, Mel, and hello, listeners. I hope we've got some pearls of wisdom or knowledge bombs for you today. Absolutely. So our topic today is really thinking about and parsing out how leadership looks different or kind of manifests differently at different levels, you know, as you move up in an organization, grow in your career, etc., And I want to start us off with a quote from a woman's personal history. Her name is Catherine Graham, and she's the former chairman and CEO of Washington Post Company. And she wrote, a whole new learning curve faced me. How to be chief executive officer of a public company with obligations to shareholders how to apply what little I'd learned about management to the business of the company. I didn't know how and when to think about growth, how the job description of a chief executive would read, how much profit we should be making or should be aiming to make. This really introduces the idea here that you're not born a leader. There are different leadership skills And indeed, they differ depending on where you are within the organization. So, Michelle, I wonder if you could just build on that. Why is this topic important? It's important, Mel, as you were reading out Catherine's quote, which, of course, is in No Ceiling, No Walls. I was thinking, well, Catherine should have come and talked to us much earlier in her career, and then she would have been very prepared to be a CEO. But all joking aside... There's a couple of things that we say. We say leadership manifests itself at every level in every organization. That is true because you can be a leader as at the start of your career or as an individual contributor in the middle and, of course, senior. But it's different. So it's depending on where you are and it will, your behaviors, your actions, and, of course, your skills will be different as you progress from individual contributor, career start through to to very, very senior. And one of the things that I was fascinated to learn when Susan Colantuno and I first met all those years ago was the concept of additive and subtractive leadership skills. And long-time listeners, you will have heard me say, there I was sitting in the back of a, an environment in New Jersey listening to our programs being delivered and I was having aha moment after aha moment. But this concept of additive and subtractive kind of got me. And I said to Susan, help me understand what this is all about. And she said very wisely, of course, okay, so you've got, you've got to learn leadership skills as you start to progress. But at, at certain levels, there are things that you would do as an individual contributor or even as a frontline leader that you need to stop doing when you're a leader of leaders and you most certainly need to stop doing as you become a leader of the business. So you gain skills as you become more senior, but you got to be really smart and say, which ones do I stop doing? Which ones, not necessarily that I lose, but I subtract them from the things that I do every day. I was obviously still looking puzzled at that point. And she said, okay, Michelle, 
what are the things that you absolutely love about leadership? And I said, oh, you know, of course, my people and the thing, you know, hanging around with them and organising things. She said, right, let's face it, listeners, I was an executive at that stage. She said, there's some things that you're potentially still doing that you should not be doing anymore. And then we got onto the subject of delegation. And as soon as she went delegation, I went, ah, you've got me. Now I know where we're going here. So this concept of we've got to keep adding, adding to our leadership toolkit, but also evolving our style, but working out what to stop doing as well. And that's evolution of leadership that I think is, well, I know is still not talked about enough, particularly with women. I love that story of you with Susan. I want to suggest that we describe a little bit what leadership looks like at the individual contributor level and immediately go into the next step up. You're a supervisor. What types of things you have to let go of? Because I think the heart of our conversation today is going to be for middle level, middle management women who are serious about advancing. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is is to say to a group of women that I'm working with, you are all leaders here. And then I say to them, and I know that there's a group of you in here going, no, I'm not, because on the organizational chart, I'm an individual contributor. I go, okay, so here's how an individual contributor demonstrates her leadership. She knows her job inside and out. And she nails her KPIs. So, and that is all about commitment to personal greatness and excellence. She's continually making suggestions to do things better that will help take the company forward. And she also knows what her boss's goals are, what her boss's objectives and KPIs are, and make sure that she's aligning her activities, her suggestions, et cetera, to that. So as an individual contributor, that's how you show leadership. Then, of course, you move towards the middle and in the middle, you're now leading people and it's now your job not to do the doing, but to organize the people who are doing the doing. So you've got to be able to engage their greatness. So as a leader in the middle, you're saying, okay, I know my people really well. I know their skills, their strengths, their gaps their preferences, etc. I also know clearly what my KPIs are. I know why my team exists. I know my personal positional purpose. I also know my team's positional purpose, which is what do we pay you to do around here? And I make sure that I align my team members' activity towards our positional purpose. And that means I've got to be good at putting the right people in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Then As you become more senior, I probably don't need to explain leadership from the top, but I will. The leadership at the top is setting the direction, whether it's for your business unit, because you're now managing a piece of the business. So a a, a business unit or area, whatever you want to call it, whatever the lingo is in in your organisation. So again, you're looking to make sure that you've definitely got the right talent. So the right people in the right place at the right time doing the right things. But you're not actually coaching and developing all of those people in your business unit. You've got leaders that are doing that. You're making sure that the strategy for your business unit is in alignment with the organisational strategy, the strategic and financial goals. So again, that positional purpose, what do they pay you to do around here? Super, super important for all of us to know that. The more senior you become, the more your focus becomes towards the external environment, less about the internal, because you've got a whole bunch of people 
already leaders and others who are running the internal part of the organization. So as a business unit leader, C-suite leader, you've got a very much an external focus to say, what are our customers, our shareholders, our stakeholders expecting from the organization? And how do I present myself as a person? Well, frankly, the, the, the company is in safe hands, a safe pair of hands. So that's my, I guess, my pricey of what leadership looks like at, at every level. Mm. I want to go back and just pull on some different threads here. So I definitely like to emphasize that as a person, regardless of industry, as they progress in their career, you do start out with that individual focus, right? You're focused on your job that you have at hand. And as soon as you start to advance, the sort of circle of your own influence that you have to think about widens at every single step. So it might widen first with you get some team members under you and you're developing them, you're helping them learn and grow, et cetera. And then as you move up, not only does that circle include more people inside the organization, but it also starts to face externally to customers, to clients, and then, like you said, later in your career to stakeholders and shareholders, things like that. So I want to point at some things here to help our listeners be really clear about some things that they have to let go of. So going from an individual contributor to a supervisor, you have to let go of any kind of obsession with doing the work yourself. And then how about after you get beyond that? So I guess I'll mention here that Susan in the book, No Ceiling, No Walls, makes a distinction between supervisor and managers. So kind of a distinction between that first step up where you're managing a group of people and then to manager where you are leading a team of supervisors, or you're leading multiple teams, not just a few direct reports. So just talk to us a little bit about some of the things that you have to let go of as you advance and the importance of delegation. Yeah, well, the things that you need to let go of are, and effectively, it's putting down the tools. So for many of us, we've had a technical stream that we've come through the business on, whether you're an engineer, whether you're an HR professional, whether you're a tech professional, whatever it may be. But there's something that you've come through on. For me, mine was around customer service and you know, I was a customer service person. So my, my thing was customers. And at some point, you've got to say, okay, I've got people doing that stuff and I need to stop doing it. So I've got to put down the tools. And I'm going to really make this about women because clearly we're all about women. One of the things that's challenging for women as they progress is to stop doing things that have previously given them a lot of fulfillment. So if you were very fulfilled in talking to customers or coding the code or being out on site and measuring up for a new dam or a bridge or you know whatever it is pardon me to the engineers who are listening because I'm clearly not an engineer <laughs> but if that's the stuff that gives you joy you're actually having to put that down because now you're in charge of the people who are doing that and it can be a barrier for some people and because this transition into the next layer of management means that you've got to find new sources of joy new sources of fulfillment in your role 
So putting down the tools is a big part of that. And the enablers for doing that, Mel, which are really super important is, number one, you have to know your people. So you have to seek out their greatness. So if I've got a team of 10 people reporting to me who have each got teams of 10 reporting to them and we're in charge of, let's say, developing all the new code for the new products for the organisation. I can't be sitting there writing out code or making suggestions for the workflow for the team who's doing code for product X. What I have to do is be looking at how do I make sure that I know my direct team well enough so I know what their strengths, their skills, their attributes are and that the right people are leading the right people in the right way at the right time doing the right stuff. I have to be seeking out talent always, which means I need to have a more external view than just my little division. So that might mean that, okay, I know Who's the recipient of my work within the organisation? I think you talk about work product, Mel. So who supplies me the stuff so that my team can create their work product? And then who receives my work product? How am I making sure that that supply chain that I'm in within my organisation is set up efficiently and effectively and that I've got great relationships on both sides of me? And I diverge a little bit there. And how am I also looking to spot talent, whether it's within the organisation or external to the organisation, to make sure that my team is never short of the right number of people and the right number of talented people to deliver our work product that moves the business forward? If I'm still having head down, bottom up doing coding and things like that, how am I possibly going to take that? external view that that wider view I can't and in the research that we do and continue to have conversations with bosses and in fact I'm having a whole bunch of conversations with CEOs at the moment about the barriers that they see that women still experience the same thing comes up over and over again she's not letting go She's still doing the work that she was doing in the position before. She's not empowering or emboldening or enabling her team to do the work. She's getting in the way. She's not delegating. So this is where we lead to delegation. And of course, it's very easy for me to sit and say, right, everyone just needs to be good at delegation. But there's a lot of stuff that goes with that, including trust, including knowing your people, including knowing your positional purpose that enables a person, a woman, to be a very good delegator. And we can also talk about all the societal stuff, you know, expectations about women, but let's keep it to that at the moment. I want to deviate for a moment and share a little story that's that's kind of related to this because it has a, a couple of important lessons in it. So this is not my story. I heard this on another podcast, and it was about a small team of software developers. They're making these pieces of software and they kept running into this problem where they would get close to the end and have close to a finished product. They would take it to their leadership and their leadership would start nitpicking things that would take too long to change, as in they wouldn't be able to deliver the product at the time that they promised it if they had to go back and change the color of the character's shirt and every you know page or wherever so what they did was some really effective managing up and they switched the order in which they were doing things and they took a set of 
the sort of decisions to the leaders at the very front. And they said, okay, you get to review this now. You have 24 or 48 hours. And after that point in time, you don't get to make any of these changes like related to these items, because this is what we're moving forward with. And I think there's a couple lessons in there around one managing up, but also two, don't be that kind of leader, because when you're at that level, those are not the kind of decisions and air quotes help that you should be providing to your team members. Absolutely. So, Michelle, maybe this is a good entree for us into engaging the greatness in others. Mm, mm. Yeah, and engaging the greatness in others, which, of course, is the third part of our, of our leadership definition. It means that as leaders, we need to actively and regularly seek out what is the greatness in the others. So what is the greatness in my team members? And of course, in that value stream as well, but let's confine it to team members at the moment. So as a great leader, what you're going to know is I'm really clear about the strengths, the weaknesses, the dynamics, and the ambitions and aspirations of my team members. And Leaders listening right now, I, I want to use an example of a really terrific act of leadership that I heard in one of my client environments last year. Sometimes when I talk about this, engaging the greatness in others and the absolute criticality of coaching, a coaching culture and developing people and creating your success, people go, oh, but I'm so busy, I don't have time for that. And I go, what the fuck? <laughs> This is your job. This is genderless, right? This is not confined to women. So this is all genders. I see it over and over again. I don't have time to do coaching or develop my others or do a do a training needs analysis or do a skills matrix for my team. And I go, really? So what the hell are you actually doing? Well, I'm really busy. Okay. So let's get down to it here, people. Your job as a team leader, and I don't, it doesn't matter what level you're at, is to know your people inside and out. It is to seek out their greatness, to capture their hearts, their minds, their efforts, and align that towards what's important, which are the strategic and financial goals of your organization, your team's positional purpose. And if you don't know how to do that, we can teach you how. But that is your job as a team leader. And if you're not doing that, how do we know who the next CEO is? Because they might be there in your team. How do we know who your successor is? Because your successor should be coming from your team. You should have at least one person ready now, one person ready in a couple of years' time. How would you know that if you're not engaging their greatness, if you're not seeking it out and saying, who's here that wants to move into my role? Or someone who's, no, no, leave me alone, please, Michelle. I'm really happy doing what I'm doing, yada, yada, yada. So this job of a leader is extraordinarily important. The engaging the ground, I'm falling over my words here, Mel, because I get very animated about it, as you can hear, listeners, but um, because I see it done so badly. So leaders who are not doing that are getting caught up with a whole bunch of other stuff. And yes, I know that there are competing priorities because hello, that is leadership because leadership is about competing priorities and VUCA. And we're going to talk about VUCA in a moment. But you've got to be able to say, what's my core role here? Now, if you were managing robots, you would make sure that each robot 
you knew what job it was going to do, that it was well-oiled, if robots need oiling, that it was well-coded, that it was operating at its full capacity, that it had the environment in which it could be thriving. So if we would do that for robots, why wouldn't we do it for our people? And as a leader, that's your job. So that's my rant around what leadership really is and what we have to do here. And that means you've got to get out of the way. You've got to set a vision. And that vision, even if you're a frontline team leader, frontline manager, it can be, okay, folks, here's our positional purpose. This is what we're going to be famous for as a team. This is how what we're going to nail this month, this quarter, this year. That's in line with the company goals. And that's the vision. So you don't have to set some lofty vision that this is our vision. This is what we're here to do, our positional purpose. This is how we're going to do it. This is who's going to do it. And this is when we're going to do it. And I'm going to be here to direct traffic, to remove barriers or bulldoze through barriers. As I always say, leaders are about bulldozers and barriers. Bulldoze through the bullshit. Be a barrier to the bullshit for your team. That's what leadership is all about, is enabling the greatness in every member of your team so that they can do what we're paid to do. I've been thinking a lot about succession lately, and it feels to me that it's one of the most overlooked pieces of planning for an organization, but I don't have a good sense of why that is. So maybe that's a topic for a future. <laughs> I think it is a topic. And we, we've touched on the how of succession planning in a previous episode. I do think we need to get really serious and talk about the why, because I agree it is not done well. You know, interestingly, we've had two examples here in Australia where I live of CEO succession done really well. And one example where it wasn't. So two of our major companies here in Australia, the Coles Group and one of our largest supermarket and Qantas, our national airline, have both just appointed new CEOs, both women, as it turns out, which is probably why I paid attention. However, both incumbent CEOs made it very clear about their succession plan. And both of the women who ended up getting the roles were part of a nominated group of people to say, these are the people in the succession plan. Yes, there'll be a, a competitive process when we come down to the changeover, but here are the people that are in the succession plan. And it was really well done because shareholders, stakeholders, including the people in the organisation, and hello, the successors, they knew these people were in the running. So it was very, very well done. Now, you don't have to be a CEO to create a succession plan. And just referring back to our previous episode, if you don't have someone ready to go now to step into your role, your boss is not going to promote you because you'll be too valuable. They'll go, no, we can't possibly put Mel into a new role because we can't lose her and we've got no one to replace her. So have a successor ready for your own career advancement. Anyway, I diverge. Well, I'll keep us on that divergent path for just a moment. You know, the another thing that I've seen certainly in the consulting world is when when organizations don't do a good job of controlling their culture in consulting where you're working on the billable hour and you get people hoarding work instead of doing it, not only just effective sharing of the work, but also teaching those people that you are going to need as part of your succession plan. Mm. Mm. Well, that tells me that, yeah, A, there's not enough 
emphasis placed on the importance of succession planning and B, that there's clearly a, a cultural issue about the way we measure success. Yes, absolutely. Billable hours, I know it's still a thing, but I think there's reasonably universal, I think that's an oxymoron to say reasonably universal agreement, but I think there's agreement that it's fundamentally flawed. So it's a, a winners and losers game from my perspective, but anyway. Yeah, I know the engineering community is going to just hold on to that for as long as they can. (laughs) As will the legal fraternity, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so engaging the greatness in others, it's your job. It's your job as a leader and you cannot effectively run an organization unless you've got the right people in the right place at the right time doing the right thing that's going to take the business forward. How in the hell are you going to know if you've got the right people if you haven't sought them out and sought out their greatness? Yeah, I wish I could do your accent. Engaging the greatness in others, it's your job. (laughs) It's your damn job, mate. (laughs) There's my really Australian accent. (laughs) I love it. Okay, before we got on the recording today, you mentioned this acronym and I hadn't heard it before, or maybe you mentioned it before and I just lost mm. it in, in my mind, but you mentioned this acronym of VUCA. So yeah, what is VUCA? What does it mean? Why does it matter for this conversation? So VUCA stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. It actually originated out of the US military. It is the hallmark of a leader's life. So I know it sounds awful, but it, it absolutely is. So the more, the more senior you become, The fuzzier the data is that you have, the more decisive your decision-making needs to be based on that fuzzy data. We do live in volatile times. And even, you know, I was was actually watching something yesterday around Moore's Law, you know, Moore's Law that we double computing power again and again and again. It's become that the cycle of doubling has become so, so close. You know, volatility, we are just moving so, so quickly in uncertain times. And that uncertainty, the next part of it is, I remember, and I know that there are still 10 and and 20 year strategies that get developed. Of course, they're very long term, but they don't stay current. You know, we all know the minute a strategy is written, the minute a budget's written, it's almost out of date within a month because we have to keep tweaking it. So as a leader, we need to say, you know, life is not written in stone. This is not the tablets of Moses. So yes, I might have planned to do something for my positional purpose in the next three to six months, but the reality is that's likely to change. How am I going to be agile enough, resilient enough to deal with that and also to help my people deal with it? Complexity, I don't think I need to tell anyone how complex the world is now. We have so many different forms of data as leaders coming at us every minute. And of course, data, it's not just spreadsheets, it's data comes from people and conversations and and all sorts of things. So, you know, that complexity, how do we interpret, how do we synthesize complex scenarios and then help our team make sense of it and drive them towards what's important, those strategic and financial goals. And of course, ambiguity. And I've got to say of all of those, ambiguity is the one I I, I deal least well with now and always have done. I always say to people, I just tell me what's coming. I'm okay. I can deal with whatever you send my way, but don't keep me guessing. And in ambiguous environments, our job as a leader is to help to remove some of that ambiguity for our people and give people a sense of certainty, even if perhaps that isn't, you know, again, as I said, written in stone. So 
I always think about, you know, ambiguity restructures. Organisations restructure, some more regularly than others, and this is actually about maintaining competitive edges. Now, I'm not entirely sure that the art of the restructure is done still. I don't think it's done very well, but that creates ambiguity. So a real people problem that leaders have to work through is, hey, the business is, is restructuring. And of course, it comes down to shivers. What does that mean for me and my role? Does it mean that I no longer have a job? Does it mean I've got to do a new job that I don't really like? What does it mean? I don't know. So our job as leaders is to say we are going to continuously deal with ambiguity. How might we help our teams with that? So this is the role of a leader. And it does mean that we've got to have agility. It does mean we've got to have a, have resilience. And, and look, resilience isn't just showing up time and time again. Resilience is saying, how do I look after myself so that I can show up in service of my team and my business all the time? And then, of course, there's a little bit of acceptance. You know, what is it? You know, give me the serenity to accept what I can't control. And I always muck up that saying. But basically, if you can't control it, if it's outside of that locus of control that you so beautifully illustrated at the start of the call, Mel, I need to go, okay, I can park that. I, I need to put that aside and say, what's within my control? And how do I accept that and move on with it? So VUCA, yeah. Yes. Okay. I want to pull out a little thread on this this piece around ambiguity and how you deal with that as a leader simultaneously needing to create a predictable environment for your people and i i was at a conference recently where i heard this gentleman don ream speak and his talk was so fantastic i immediately bought his book and what he talks about in his book and his work is using our understanding of the human brain and biology to translate that into what type of work environment people need in order to thrive. And if people are thriving, that means they're more productive and they're more engaged with you at work. One of the biggest principles that he discusses is this need for predictability. So Companies go through challenging times. Absolutely. There's uncertainty. You know, the pandemic was a great example, but how you handle it as a leader makes the difference for your people. So I'll use a, an example that's kind of blunt, but during the pandemic, did leadership at your company see the uncertainty coming with the pandemic and just do a wide sweeping layoff, which certainly would have had the effect of driving down morale of the re remaining people, having them fear for their jobs, et cetera? Are those going to be engaged employees? Probably not. Versus companies who took measured action, and I know some on the engineering side that, that did a good job of this, they did things like, okay, no one's getting a raise, none of the executives are getting a bonus this year, and we're asking people to start using their PTO, start using it so it's not hanging around on the books. And they took measures to protect themselves financially, to protect the interests of the business, but they didn't do it at the expense of people and the culture and the morale that takes, let's be honest, years to establish. Mm. It's interesting because there's two bits I want to pull out of that. And number one, he talks about knowing what your people's 
wants and needs are, what do people need, which means you've got to know them. You, you can't make this stuff up, right? So we have to know our people. So I'm you know, engaging the greatness, seeking out that greatness in people. And then the other part is a new term, which I just totally love called extreme communication and I was watching Lisa Sue who's the CEO of AMD the chip processor company who's gone from zero to hero under her leadership in the last 10 years I was watching her talk to investors yesterday on a YouTube thing and someone said to her you know how did you manage because she's just executed this amazing turnaround of this organization and she said the question was at the start, they had to stop doing a whole bunch of stuff, which they had, had traditionally done and focus on their core strengths. Like, let's go back to our knitting, you know, whatever it is. And they said, how did you manage that with people? And she said, extreme communication. And I think her quote was, you say something 75 times and then you say it another 75 times. And I think that's, again, that principle of what you've just talked about with, with Don, extreme communication. We've got to give people certainty by communicate, communicate, communicate with heart and mm. genuineness, because, you know, I don't like to use the word authentic, but I've just used it. You know, be real, right? Give people that sense of certainty. Hey, COVID, hello, this is a global shit show, but here's how we're going to help manage through it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to communicate to you over and over again and make the expectations clear so people can then make an informed choice about what how they react to it. Yes. And so we'll say it again here. So that extreme communication, this repetition that you use, being transparent about what's going on and how you're going to manage things. What it does that Don's talked about is it gives people a sense of predictability and ultimately safety. And what that does is it puts the human person, their biological systems in a state where they feel like they can be calm because they feel like they know what's coming and that they're protected as part of the group. We hear a lot around creating psychological safety. That is it. Yep. That's the outcome. Me knowing what's coming and I know that my bosses and my boss's bosses have got my back because they're telling me that they've, they've got it. These are all parts of, you know, how does your leadership evolve over time as you move forward in your career? Those are also incredibly important parts um, to, to pay attention to. But that engaging others cannot underestimate, <clears throat> engaging and aligning them cannot underestimate how important that is. Mm, yeah. Okay, so final thought here, perhaps getting off the dance floor and into the balcony. Yeah, yeah. So I think for leaders on the call, in summary, we want you to put down the tools. So if, if you've had some technical expertise that you've really got a lot of fulfillment from and you're moving into the next level, you've really got to assess which tools do I put down, which do I still take up every day? So I really want you to put down those tools. And part of that is learning to delegate activities and tasks to your team members. If you're not doing that, you're not developing your successor. And you're also creating a barrier for those people to demonstrate their greatness and their contribution to the organisation. And that means that you've got to know your people really well. I know we've said it a number of times in this call, engage their greatness by seeking out their greatness. What are your people 
good at? How can you have the right people in the right place doing the right thing at the right time for the organisation if you don't know them? And then, of course, navigate the volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity and help your people deal with it as well. So those are the four things that we want you to pay attention to, listeners, as you move through from individual contributor to first-line leader to mastering the middle through to the lofty heights of executives and and C-suite leadership. Great nuggets of wisdom. Thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you all listeners for joining us. We'll see you next time. Oh, I've got one more thing, Mel. Sorry. Um, So we've got a little self-assessment, listeners, and we'll pop that into the show notes. So Mm -hmm. you can do a self-assessment. Really simple few questions against those four categories. And we'll put the link in the show notes so that you can start. Well, just have a think. What do I need to do more of? And what do I need to do less of as I progress my career? So thanks, Mel. Very juicy. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.